As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Adversity. When times are good and all seems to have fallen in place, we don't gaze into it. There is no need to assess time and space. It is easy to falsely believe that calm seas will prevail the trip. This is usually when fierce winds pick up, causing our sails to rip. Adversity we must suffer is through pain that we grow tough. None can avoid it, for life teaches us her lessons thus. We all must endure our own trials, battles and tribulations, emerging the other side with thicker armour and extra insulation. 
Adversity hardens the will the way the hammer and fire temper steel. There is no greater method to prepare for life's next ride downhill. So tackle troubles head on, embracing the process to come. This golden life opportunity, gain wisdom, grow strong, beating your battle drum. Our guest today is a published poet, and that's an excerpt from one of his pieces called Adversity. If you Google Scott Kieran, though, you'll find him described variously as a bikey enforcer, an arsonist, a kidnapper, and an attempted murderer. Scott is well aware that his rap sheet is nothing short of terrifying. He's hurt and traumatised a lot of people. In 2016, an attempt to intimidate went wrong and he ended up paying a very high price himself. Scott Kieran joins us on Australian True Crime today to talk about his life and crimes. We begin with his early life, which in many ways does not conform to the template we've come to expect from Australia's most violent men. From a young age, I've seen, you know, violence as a tool. It's pretty easy to get your way when somebody's scared. It's a pretty good motivating factor for people. Where did you learn that, do you think? Did you learn that in your own home, in from your watching your parents interact or? No, I didn't. I had a reasonably good childhood. Uh, my parents, they split up when I was 11, I think the first time they got back together once or twice, but violence in the household wasn't an issue, which is a common cause of guys who are violent is they grew up in those types of situations. And in those early years, you're forming, you know, like habits and, you know, like learning how to interact in relationships. And literally your brain is growing. So your brain grows in a certain way if you are witnessing that as a small child. Exactly right. But I think for me, it was more in my teen years. I grew up in Western Sydney. Um, You know, violence was common in the area. And I've seen guys, look, we didn't have a lot of money in the, like most people grow, grow up around the Penrith area aren't well off. Um, and then the guys that you look, you see that, are, you know, like in your view, successful are the guys that join bike clubs and sell drugs. And a part of the, that success that they enjoy is having to intimidate, having to be violent. Like if someone doesn't pay their drug debt, then you've got to go fuck and make an example of them and get your money. So the next guy pays, if that makes sense. So, but not just that, but also just, you know, once you hit the pubs and club scenes, I mean, at the time when I was 17, 18, started going out, I used to go to Pen Panthers a lot. There's a few pubs around. Penrith, they were all on the state's most violent public. So you wanted to be able to defend yourself. I was had anger that I really couldn't really explain. And it's hard for me, even now, even after having done a lot of reflection to understand where my anger came from. But I was an angry young man that uh, even at the age of 17, 18, and early 20s, they're still formative use for your brain development and, your, um, and the way that you uh, learn to interact with people and get you on. So I actually think that mine was probably more of an environmental uh, factor, you know, like just the environment that I grew up in. And then as soon as I started to seek get benefit from my behaviour, I thought, oh, well, this works, I'll just keep on doing it. You know what I mean? To go to back to something I said about the bike clubs and success, another element of that is that, you know, like these guys have came from the same place that I came from, you know, without a lot of money. Um, and then all of a sudden they're driving nice cars, they're wearing gold, you know, jewellery, they've got lots of cash in their wallets. And people show them respect. Like you walk into a nightclub or a pub and everybody wants to shake their hand and buy them a drink. And then growing up, you know, in my teen years, not having, you know, that respect, not having money, like all that type of stuff. You see, oh, these guys have what I want. You know, I want to live that life. They've got nice women hanging around them that are showing them interest. I want women to show me interest. So um, it is like the picture of success that 
I grew sort of grew up and aimed towards. So with that violence, I, I became an attractive prospect to the bike club because now I have something that's valuable to them. You know, like I was a big, angry, violent guy, so I'm of use to them. And now they've got something that I want and I've got something they want. So that's sort of the path towards the hanging around the bike clubs and the crime and et cetera. Tell us about when you first were gravitated to the Rebels Motorcycle Club when you joined up. How did it feel? I just hung around and just went to their parties a lot. I never become a full member. I was more associated with them. Uh, there was a period of time where I nommed up, which basically means you're, you're, like, you're a prospect to be a member type of thing. So I spent some time with that, but around that, but that was a few years on. Like I was probably spent about five years just hanging around and going to the parties and stuff like that. But then when I sort of seen it from, I guess, an inside perspective, I didn't really like what I was seeing. So I sort of hung around. Oh, I spent about maybe eight or nine months as a as a norm and then I just thought this is not for me and I don't I don't want to do this anymore. Why? What was it that you didn't like? They sort of sell you on this is a, a brotherhood. Like we are all together. We're a group of mates. We all look out for each other. If you need anything, we'll help you out. You know, like this we have lots of fun, we party. It's like a family type of thing, you know, we've got each other's back. And from from the outside looking in, that's attractive to a lot of guys just in and of itself because a lot of guys that do go towards that bike clubs come from shit family situations growing up so the idea of like a tight family unit or a brotherhood is very appealing just for that reason alone and then you know obviously there's the money and all the other stuff that go with it and the women but and just hanging around and being you know like partying with them they're only going to let you see so much you know like obviously when it comes time for meetings or club related business they do that in private so you don't see what really goes on so once I was on the other side of it, it seemed to me that the whole the, the brotherhood side of things, it's there when things are going well and it's party time, but then when you know things aren't going so well, you know, guys go to jail, there's there's other issues, people just get left with it. And then hey, there's lots of jealousy, he's making more money than me. There's a lot of infighting. Like if there's a lot of headaches and dramas and shit that goes with bike clubs, then I would say that eighty to ninety percent of it is internal. Like out of all the the dramas and the, the violence, a lot of it is guys within their own camp having issues. There's always other issues, but you know things pop up, you know, between different clubs or different groups. But I'd say a vast majority of the headaches that you're going to have with a bike club is going to come from within your own crew. So I didn't like that aspect of it. So what made you stay on though as an associate? So so what made you? I mean, you're talking about people not backing you up when the shit goes down and people going to jail. And that's, in fact, exactly what happened to you. Yeah, and so and that happened after I left. Like, I've left it all behind. So there was guys that I sort of grew up with and guys that I met once I was hanging around the club that were my friends. I'm not saying that everybody was 100%. Everybody was just all for themselves. A lot of the guys were friends of mine that I went to high school with or grew up around the area, which when I decided that it wasn't for me, there was no bad blood, there was no hard feelings around anything that's assembled, this is just not for me, I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. And the whole idea and thing of being a, a normal no prospect is that you're seeing if you're a right fit for the club and the club's seeing if you're a right fit for them. And, and I just didn't feel like it was. So it's, it's, it, there was no issues in with me going, but I still, just, as, just because the, the club aspect of things wasn't for me, it didn't mean that my criminal offending had stopped. I was still choosing to live my life outside the law um, yeah, I just didn't want to do it with a bike club. Also, it seems that your association with the motorcycle club gets brought up 
with other offences that aren't associated with the Michael hmm. Motorcycle Club, right? So once journalists realise that there is a connection that's just, for them, an interesting element to throw into the story. For example, when we talk about the attempted murder charge, that looks to me like it's pretty clearly not motorcycle club business. This, this looks like a, a dispute between a young woman and former housemates or something. Yeah, that's right. And you have gotten involved as a friend or as, I don't know, a romantic partner or something and pretty heavy-handed over what seems to be a dispute over clothes. Is that right? Oh, essentially it was just that she, um, she had belongings at the house and had to collect. She went there a previous time to collect them and she was assaulted by the occupants of the house. So I just said, well, the next time you go to get your stuff, I'll come with you and make sure nothing happens to you. That was the premise. So, yeah, again, but, yeah, no bike club relation at all. But if you put bikey associate or rebels or whatever in a story headline, there's probably a lot more chance that someone's either going to read it or click on it. I think the media as a whole, their probably greatest asset to them is fear because the most, the highest ratings have been on the nightly news, I would say, during coronavirus, during 9-11, during anything major, everybody's watching the news because they're scared. Fear is, it sells papers, it gets people to so turn on the nightly news, it gets people to click on the story. And people are scared of bikies. So that's an idea, an image that strikes fear into people. So when you say, when we read a story that says, uh, well, I'll tell you what happened. There was a dispute over clothing at this share accommodation house and this girl's gone back with a bikey and then one of the blokes she used to live with is now recovering in hospital uh, with stab wounds, I think. Was it stab wounds? Yeah, yeah that's right, yeah. I mean, that sounds like shit. Yeah, I wouldn't blame anyone for being scared in that situation. And it was crazy, I'm like, not try to um, you know, diminish the seriousness of the of the event itself at all because it was and it was a massive overreaction to something that this should never taken place in the first place shouldn't have happened. But if we're just talking about the media skew on things like if you incite it, so oh, no, you know, I hundred percent agree. That's what I'm saying. You know, as soon as you mention you know there's a bike involved, we definitely make up our own minds. But yeah. from your perspective, when this young woman has come to you with this story, because I also think that. Other people can use people like you because mm. they know other people are scared of the bikies. So people can think, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to ring my mate, Scotty, the bikie, and fucking take him around there and sort this shit out and get my clothes. Did it ever occur to you to say, no, I'm not doing that. Here's 100 bucks. Go and buy yourself some new clothes. Yeah. Look, now, now that would be the obvious, obvious way to approach the situation. At the time, we were, you know, drinking I was under the influence of Xanax. Not to say that that's an excuse because it's not. Plenty of people have drinks and have Xanax and don't go and do the same thing. Oh, plenty of people have drinks and have Xanax and go um, shoplifting too, though. I mean, that is yeah. a that is a crazy cocktail. So that actually mm. is that's significant to me. So at the time and in the in the moment, I was fine with the idea. So Xanax, for those who don't know, is this a, is an anti-anxiety medication, and the basic you know function of it is to shut off your thought process um so because that's what anxiety is you're thinking you know and stressing over you know future events or past events but you know like it's a, it's a thought process that, that, that basically causes anxiety so these this medication shuts that down like your higher brain functions are, um you know like sense of, and reason and you know coming to like a, a reasonable conclusion you know in that situation that's all shut off but if you are going to use those type of drugs recreationally especially uh, in concert with alcohol, 
you're opening yourself up to that happening. That's why I say I don't use the fact that I was under the influence and I was fucked up. Like I'm not like I'm not saying that I wasn't incoherent because I could still drive a car or I could still go and, you know, do what I done. Um, stab a bloke. Stab a bloke, that's right. But I would yep. the thing was is you just don't care at the time. Like I remember talking to Russell about this um and I was like that the equivalent would be back in his bank robbing days would be to walk into a bank with no balaclava and and um, hold the place up. Because in the moment and the time and in that state, you're like, who gives a fuck? That's what the fucking drug is supposed to do. It's supposed to make you go, oh, all those things I was worrying about now, I don't give a fuck about that. That's not a big issue. That's what the drug does. So, yeah, of course, like, I get asked all the time, like, what the fuck were you thinking? And, like, the good question, because if I was in um, if I was in somebody else's shoes and I would say, yeah, that's fucking ridiculous. Like, fuck, you went back to collect fucking belongings of no monetary value or something. Um, it wasn't about that, you know. I just said I'll just come come with you to make sure nothing happens to you. But I also went there armed with a knife, ready for fucking drama. So that tells you that there's got to be some level of something. Things might kick off here. But you weren't in your, you literally weren't in your right mind. You in your right mind now are saying that was ridiculous, but you weren't it in was. your right mind at that time. No. So you caught a charge. Yeah. So I got charged with attempted murder, you know, break and enter, like a special aggravated break and enter. So. Charges that carry serious jail time. Like there's, um, like the three times that I've been to prison, I've been charged with offences that could get me around the ten year mark. Three times, they're not small charges, and I can't say that you know, like for every time, oh well, I was out of my mind, so it's okay. Like it's there's a pattern of behaviour there, and if the fact that you are on drugs or alcohol or whatever is a factor, then don't fucking drink and take drugs. <laughs> Especially if I've got a propensity for violence. Also, what about the the victim? Now, he had a Winchester rifle on the premises. He, he fired shots at you. But at the end of the day, Vince Dottillo, he was very seriously assaulted. So, And he lives with that for the rest of his life. Have you ever yeah. had any further, I suppose you're not allowed to have any further contact with him? No, look, we know mutual people. And I know that he has got in contact with mutual people, um, which I've not got back in contact with. But... I, one of the things is, no matter what your crime is, there's always a victim. But when my end of things, it's serious. Like it's a life, life-altering event, and it's probably more the psychological aspect of things that are going to affect him than there's like stab, stab wounds and medical things. You know that well past that. You know, like he obviously went through a pretty bad time, was in hospital for a while. But you know, you discharge from hospital and you go home and the wounds heal. But then. You know, there's like, okay, you're going to feel safe in your home and all that type of stuff. So I understand the gravity of the situation and what the implications and, you know, if there's a ripple effect, not just for him, but, you know, what about his neighbours and the general community as a whole to think, well, if that can happen next door, it can happen at my house. One of the things that I spent the time, most recent time in prison doing was really looking back and taking ownership for all of the stuff that I've done and also having a, I want to have a, like a genuine understanding of, the flow-on effect, you know, this is what happens, this is what you cause to people. But And even if your offending is linked to something to do with your own past trauma and all this type of stuff, you are still then, you're just taking the same pain that you experience and you're putting it onto multiple other people, you're amplifying it by a factor of 10, 100. But, you know, like if, you, if it's a one-off thing, there might be one victim, but then there's 10 people that are affected by it. But what if you, you live that life like I did for a long time and there's 20 victims and then the, all the people that are associated with them, it's hard to quantify the effect that you have. So I wanted to really have a, I'll make an effort to just understand this is the cause. Um, this is what 
you know, what, what was causal to my offending, but what about the, the pain that you're causing? And so that I don't go back, I don't want no desire to go back to jail, but I've got no desire also to go and commit offences and cause more pain to people. That's it. Most of us don't ever want to scare anybody or hurt anybody. Like, um, you know, we can be angry at people, even hate people. But for most of us, the the rage, even the the instinct of I want to fucking kill that person passes before we have time to really inflict pain and we come back to our sensibility of, no, I don't actually want to hurt somebody. Uh, I'm not that person, we'll say to ourselves, you know. So, yeah, for you to be able to bring yourself back to that, to I, Scott, am not that person, I don't want to hurt people, yeah, I guess you would have to work through and sit in the place of, okay, let me really sit with all the people I have hurt and think about it. Yeah, so you can't ring your victims and say, oh, I'm sorry. And I would I would think, too, they probably wouldn't want to fucking hear it, to be honest. Like, no, they, that's what, no, fuck like, no. The, would they want to hear, like, I, you know, I'm the guy that's done this to you and I'm trying to turn my life around. And I'd be like, I don't give a fuck about your life, mate. Like, like, what about what you've done? So I think the best thing that you can do is, you know, correct your own cause and be better from that point on. Learn from your experiences. And also one of the things I try to do and one of the main things, my motivating factors for the book was to be of benefit to other people. I guess there's a redemption aspect in it that I feel like the you go to jail, you serve your debt to society, but then... I feel like there's still a responsibility on my part that I'm in a good position where I can, you know, like say for instance, I could go into the kids' jails and talk to them and, you know, like say, look, this is the course of action. This is a path that I took. This is why you shouldn't go down that path. Yeah, because we all know that who who are they going to listen to, you know? They're not going to listen to me. They're not going to listen to – that's a really valuable thing. There are very few people on earth that I could think – kids in juvenile detention might be interested in listening to, might go back into their room and think about. And I think you could be one of those people. And But you are not without loss and you are not without trauma. Can we talk about Harley McKenna? Yeah, yep, definitely. So I used to spend a lot of time on the Gold Coast. I used to travel up there regularly, go partying and see friends. And he became my closest mate. We were really close friends. Back then I was a party animal and so was he. So... Well, we met through, um, you know, like mutual friends and partying and all that sort of stuff. And anyway, so he, we used to go out a lot and um, party and carry on. And he would come down to Sydney. So the long story short of him is that we got kicked out of the pub. Uh, O'Donoghue's Irish pub in Emu Plains. That's right, yeah. So uh, we were kicked out and we weren't happy about it. So we just went back to my place and kept on partying and drinking and taking drugs and stuff. And... Um, it was decided that, well, we're not going to cop that. So when it closes, we'll go to burn it down. Fuck them. They want to kick us out. We'll fucking burn your pub down. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, we both were pretty, I guess, extreme people with, you know, we take things from zero to 100 like that. We'll both like that. But anyways, when um, he set fire to the pub, the oil, he had fuel on himself and he set fire to himself as well. And I tried to help. I tried to save him. I tried to drag him off and put him out. But he ended up passing away as a result of that. Harley was 29. He had a daughter. Yeah. So like when I was touching on earlier about, you know, there's a flow on effect, there's a ripple effect to these type of things. Obviously, the things that jumped to mind there is he's got a daughter that was six months old when he died. Oh, my God. He's got a, obviously, he leaves behind, you know, a mother, his siblings, friends, family. Like, that type of thing impacts a lot of people. And how can you sort of put yourself in the shoes of, say, his mother, for instance, who 
by I don't know why, but um, but I'm very grateful that I still have a very close relationship with his mum, his partner you know, at the time, and the, the which is the daughter's mother. It's incredibly gracious of them, isn't it? Yeah. It's so gracious because I think I could be just so overwhelmed with anger that you two just did something so stupid, uh-huh. pointless, and he died that I, I could maybe blame you for the rest of my life. One of the things that I really struggled with out of that whole scenario, other than the you know, traumatic death of my friends, and obviously it's a traumatising situation. I don't think there's a worse way you can die. You know, like, and there's a, the image in your mind that's never going away. I tried my best to save him. The last words that he said to me, etc., all that type of stuff. But then I think, what, like, that's obviously trauma, you know, that you have to work through and get over. But I thought, I really fucking struggled to understand why his mum and these people were supporting me. Like, I really, that would probably fucked with my head more than anything. Because I was thinking to myself, I don't know if I could do that. And I probably, to be honest, I probably couldn't. But then, like, that is, that speaks to like a strength of character. Because, one of, like you can't talk to yourself. Like we all experience grief. You know, we all have you know, you know, parents or grandparents or people close to us pass away. So well, I think one of the aspects of grief, like you hear a mother, you know, she loses a son in a car crash, so for instance, and they'll blame themselves when no blame can be attributed. I think that's a common aspect of grief. But in this situation, there is a direct cause to your son's death, and you can clearly point the finger at the person and go, "You're the fucking culprit." I mean, it was both of you who decided to do it, but he's not here anymore to be mad at. But also further to that, I mean, you were charged with manslaughter. So not only did you live through the incident and see your best friend die in a horrific way, Mm. but then you had to go through the process of being blamed legally for that. Were you convicted? No, no, the charges against me were dropped. So, but... And by a legal technicality. So regardless of what, when I was charged with his death, obviously that was hard to take. But you think, well, I did do, I was complicit in going along with something that did cause somebody's death, even if they were complicit and willing to go along with it anyway. Like, you can't have people behaving in ways that just people die and there'd be no fucking legal ramifications. So I, and I was expecting, I knew I was going to get charged. I've got a reasonably good understanding of the law, so I knew it was coming. But when they dropped it against me, I didn't feel any better about it. It's like, oh, I'm off the book. Like, oh, well, I still have myself responsible now. Like, I know that with my friendship with him too, like I was in a position um, where I would have some influence over the guy to say, hey, we're not doing this. This is fucking stupid. Pull your head in. And he would have. So there's obviously guilt. So when, what I care what the law says, I still feel guilty. I always feel guilty. It's just, you can't hang on to things like that because it can destroy you and ruin you if you do. So I have to sort of forgive myself at some level, but I'll always hold some level of um, responsibility. I'll never let it go fully. What What were the last words that he said to you? Um, he said to me, just go, I'll take the blame for this. I thought they must have been. You know why? I thought I noticed that he was found, Harley was found in a nearby car park and you were found at your home. But I went to, I went to go for help. I wasn't leaving him. There's no way I'd ever leave him. I just didn't have a phone on me or anything. So I went to go ring for help which I did. I went to the neighbor's house. I went to my neighbor's house um, and said, can you get help? This is what's happened. So I would never leave him. I'm not, I, I don't care about the legal ramifications. I don't care what he said. Like, oh, I'll take the blame for his. I'm like, yeah, sweet. All right, mate, we'll enjoy fucking dying there. <laughs> like, like, I'm not a heartless person. And I love my, like, I would give anything for him to be back and for that not to happen. So there's no way I would leave him just to 
take the blame, you know, with his death. So, no, I went to, I, I lived about 200 metres up the road and I went up to my neighbour's house, knocked on her door. I think it was like two or three o'clock in the morning, banging on her door, fucking yelling and screaming, sort of come out and get help, you know. I didn't really care what the law has to say about it anyway. Like, I've, I care more about what his mum has to say about it, what his daughter will have to say about it, how I feel about it and all that sort of stuff. I mean, there were always going to be consequences for the owners of the pub. Let's not forget them. Yeah. So not only has their pub been, you know, attacked by arsonists because you were obviously being assholes at the pub, that's why they kicked you out, yeah. but now a man has died as part of it. Again, that's so traumatic for them. How did it change your life that night? Um, initially for the worse. That was my second time in jail. So, and I just went on doing the same shit. Like when I went to jail that time, I didn't want to deal with it. So like there's an abundance and availability of drugs in jail. So I, was, I started using Xanax in jail every day and I just did not want to deal with it at all. So I just buried myself under a drug habit. I was you know, suffering the trauma of the event. I had two court cases going on at the time because I was on bail at the time of that offence for a previous offence. So I had my legal problems were stacked to the ceiling. I was looking at between the two cases, I reckon up to maybe 15 years jail. So I thought, well, that's obviously a long time. Um, so I didn't want to think about that. I didn't want to think or deal with the fact that my mate died, how he died. You know, I had post-traumatic stress and there was very fresh new and new. So my life was in the fucking toilet, basically. And I just thought, I'm not dealing with that. I don't want to know about it. So I'm just going to take drugs and not deal with it. So that's what I've done for nearly a year. And then um, so the, the court case that I was out on bail for, the initial court case that I went to jail for, um, we ran a trial for that case, and um, we were successful at trial. We won trial. And um, leading up to it, um, I said that no matter what happens, win, lose, or draw that trial, I'm going to give up the drugs at the end of it because can't go on with that forever. So um, I quit the next day. I started. That was my – took me six weeks to recover from the withdrawals and come down and feeling terrible, but I stopped that day. Um, but when I got – I had another six months jail to go from that point. So, uh, although the manslaughter case against me was dropped, the arson wasn't. So I was charged with arson in company. I didn't like the fire, but I was there. So if you go and commit an offence with somebody um, and they commit the offence but you're present, then you still have some level of culpability. So, um, so I had some more jail time to do. So I got out from that. And then I think the hardest thing they'd get now at that time was the real-world ramifications of his death and what happened, you know, like... When you're in jail, it might not seem so, but you are very much insulated from the outside world. It's not just through contact, but you don't have to deal with any of the shit that they outside. You don't pay rent. You don't have bills. You know, like if in that case, um, you know, like I wasn't out there watching and dealing with the grief of the people that he left behind. You know, they're trying to adjust to life without, you know, their partner, their father, their son. I was essentially living in a bubble and I didn't have to deal with any of it. And I had those court cases going on, so I had my own issues that I was sort of focused on. As well, so when I got out, I just, well, it was in my face all of a sudden, and it wasn't long before I was, you know, drinking back on the Xanax again, and which led to was a you know, factor in the next case. So then I found myself back in jail only eight weeks after being released. So like, obviously that's fucking wow. Yeah, not much time at all. So what for what happened for the for the home invasion case we already talked about, where I was shot and you know, right. Okay. Oh, that was after that. Yeah. So these things you can see. It's like the butterfly effect. One thing causes another. 
And like I said, there's no excuse for it. You can say, oh, that's fine, and that makes sense for it. It doesn't, but this is what happens with recidivism. People have unresolved issues that are causal to offending. Those issues that are causal to their offending are not dealt with in prison. Um, If anything, people's issues get worse in prison. Because there's no effective way or um, avenues for them to deal with the issues in prison, which is a systemic problem, then people turn to things like drugs, and then they get out. The problems are still there. Now they've got a drug habit. Their chances for employment are diminished and some people get out to no family and all this type of stuff. So the cycle of offending continues. So that's what happened with me. So um, when I came back to prison that time, which is the most recent time, I thought, I am not living my life like this. So I'm not in and out. I'm not going to take drugs. I'm not going to... I do not want to contribute to the fucking statistics anymore. And I want to be a father to my son, which you cannot be from prison. You can have contact with your kids every day. You can have contact with your family every day. It doesn't fucking matter. You cannot be a father in prison. So I thought, I'm not doing it. I, was, I thought that I'm probably going to be in jail for a very long time. And whether that's two years or 10 years, I'm going to get out a better man. But the only way for me to do that is to solve the problems that are causing me to keep coming to prison. So I had to work it out. This, I, was, I didn't know how the fuck I was going to work any of it out. So I just, that, was, that was the start point. So what did you work out? I mean, you've, you've said to us, you know, you had a good childhood. You didn't grow up in violence. Um, you know, your parents broke up, but parents, everyone's parents break up. Like, no. what have you figured out about your offending, about how to break that cycle? Where, where is that cycle for you? Where does it come from? Well, once I started going to jail, I obviously kept on going back. So I thought, that's not normal. Well, I think what it boils down to, and the thing that I come up with the most is that I just had a, I was genuinely dissatisfied with where I was in life. I've never found any level of satisfaction up until that point. I was never happy with where I was, and I wanted to have more. And I think I was angry with my position in the world, and I think that's why I went to fucking join the bike club. I think that's why growing up, you know, like fighting and violence, and I use that as a, I seen that as a tool. That was a big contributing factor. But to say, you know, like if, if say, for instance, I grew up in a household where I was violently, like, like my dad was a very violent man, then that is easy to pinpoint. That's not a, that's not a fucking difficult one to pinpoint. If you know, like my parents were both shock and drug, drug addicts and neglected us, then that's an easy one to pinpoint. But for me, I say, well, if you were to, from a psychological standpoint. To say why is somebody violent? Why is somebody criminal? You know, they they offend. Why is somebody angry? You point to those things, but I didn't have those things to point to. So I think I come down to just my fucking outlook, my attitude, my mindset. I've always hated authority. Could not fucking stand being told what to do by anybody. My parents, teachers, like I've well, been suspended from school all the time. I was just fucking angry. I did not want to listen to what anybody had to say. I was always very fucking defiant. How did you cope at school? Do you think looking back, you had? ADHD or anything like that? Yeah, no, I was, I was diagnosed with ADHD and now you hear people talk about fucking defiance disorder or something like that. I don't like, look. I know you don't want to use excuses, but I think it's real and I think, you know, were you kicked out of class a lot for your behaviour? Were you left isolated, like, out on the veranda or? Yeah, all the time, yeah. That was that was my story. And I used to just not, once I moved to year seven and eight, I went very rarely, like I didn't go, to go too often. It's like to pinpoint that as like a causal thing, I don't. I don't really buy that, but I think once I started going out, like 16, 17, started going to pubs and fighting in pubs and stuff, that's, I think, the, the time that I um, really had started to 
have issues, but I think, like I said, that's the, the very development, that's a crucial developmental point, and I pinpoint it back to that, like as a as a starting point. You know, like drugs and alcohol, violence, the way that I viewed it, seeing it as a tool, um, not being happy, not being satisfied with where I was, where I was, and wanting more, and then in that looking towards, you know, like bike club, guys in bike clubs and criminals who were getting ahead, and I thought that's my fucking ticket. So that's what I pinpointed as like those factors were more the things that I'd put it down to, which is just a fucking choice. And getting ahead through literally being rebels, through not conforming to the the standard sort of rule-following way of life, not having a boss, not, I know there's a hierarchy, but, but not, you know, listening to authority, not following authority you know, getting ahead that way. It's very appealing. It is very appealing. and that, But that is also one of the things I didn't like about the bike club, having to answer someone to what you've been told to do. I don't want to fucking listen to what anybody has to tell me. It doesn't matter if you're in a bike club or not, whether you're the cops or not, whether you're a prison officer or not, whether you're my parents or not, but the my long-suffering parents. <laughs> but so, yeah, um, yeah so I, 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 like I said, I continued on with my criminal behaviours and the way that I chose to live my life. I wasn't working at the time. I was making lots of money. That, to me... That was the freedom that I guess I felt like by that point, this is, a, I think, a common misconception for guys that are getting to that life. People sort of, you get a bit of respect, but it's not respect. People might show you respect out of fear, but behind your back, they're going, what a fucking loser. Like, what a dickhead. What about those bikers? They're fucking, what a bunch of idiots, you know? But to your face, they'll show you all the respect in the world and shake your hand and fucking let me buy you a drink. Oh, I've heard a lot about you. You're a fucking great guy. But so I think that someone that grows up you know, like I said, Western Sydney, don't, you're not happy with your position in the world. Like nobody in general would see you as anything special at all. So you seek something and then all of a sudden people are shaking your hand then buying your drinks and showing you that respect and women show you that attention. You know, like I said, that's appealing. But by that point, you know, like I've left and I was doing my own thing, living outside of the wall, you know, while I say, you know, like selling drugs and doing all that sort of stuff. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you were in prison and you've made the decision, okay, I'm going to stop taking drugs. It's taken you six weeks, you know, and you've you've been through that physical process. Mm. How did you get from that anger and that that psychological place to where you are now because now you're so clear thinking so you know you really you sound like you really can see very clearly the mistakes you've made what got you there where you don't want to be anymore you've really turned things around how did you do that well i I would have said at first i had no idea i just thought i don't know how i'm going to do it i don't know what to do i don't know how to solve this problem it's a big problem so i thought well i'm in prison there's psychologists in prison i'll ask them and I say, I speak to the guards and I say, I want to I want to speak to a psychologist. And they go, okay, mate, we'll fill out this form and put you on the list. And 18 months later, I had not heard from a psychologist. Despite saying, what's going on with that? They go, oh, mate, you're on a list. I go, all right, well, I said, well, maybe I could do some kind of tertiary education. I could, um, I want to better myself. I want to get out. I don't want this 10 years or five years or whatever I do to be for nothing. I want to be a better man. I want to educate, to make the most of this time. I can upskill, I can get out and contribute to the community better or I can provide for my family. So I said, I want to do some tertiary education. No, you can't do that. You're not doing that either. And I said, well, what, what can I do? Or can I do some courses? Or, you know, like um, drugs and alcohol are directly related to my offending. Um, fucking my offending has always been violent. There are courses for addressing drugs and alcohol. There are violence. So I said, I want to do them. Like, no, you can't do them. And I said, why? You're not eligible. I said, I oh, fucking in for attempted murder. So I fucking stabbing somebody. Like, my, like, that's fucking pretty violent. Look at my record. I've got fucking, you know, five common assaults. I've got three actual bodily harm. You know, I've been charged with manslaughter. I've been charged with fucking attempted murder. Like, that's a pretty fucking violent rapture. You, how am I not eligible for a violence course? Um, and they said, well, mate, you're not sentenced yet. They have, like, these scores which assess your chances of reoffending. And mine was low. And I said, you know, this is my third time in jail, like, in a five-year period, I've come to jail three fucking times. I think my chance of reoffending would probably be high. No, mate, you know, we've assessed it as low. Um, so you're not eligible to do those courses. And I was like, wow. So anyway, to your original question, what did I do? First of all, I've reached out to the system to see what the system can do for me. And once I figured out that the system is going to do fuck all for me, I have to sort it out for myself. So I thought, well, I can read. The uh, jails have libraries. So I thought any book that I could get, on any type of psychology. I want to understand my psychology. I want to understand why I make the choices that I make. I want to understand why I am the way that I am, etc. So I just went to the library and got book after book after book. And you can get lots of information from books. But I also started talking to people. I thought, well, I want to hear other people's stories and what they do. Like You will find all sorts of people in jail from different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, different ages, races, religion, every type of person for every type of offence. There's people in there for low-level shoplifting things to people in for murder and drug importation and everything in between. So I thought, I'll talk to people. So I'll just strike up conversations with people about their stories and I'll try and nail down on what makes 
people do the things that they do because then maybe I can figure out why I do the things that I do. And then I just thought also I just have to – I started to develop my own philosophies around things like, you know, what the choices that you make and why we make the choices that we make. So basically it was just me doing my best to figure shit out for myself. It took a long time. I was in jail for four years, uh, three months that last time, and I think it took pretty much every day of that four years, three months to get to a point where I can say – I think that I've done enough work on myself so that I have a reasonable understanding of what I was doing wrong and what not to do in the future and then moving forward, how to keep that up because it's always work. You speak to somebody who's a drug addict, they're always working at it. The work's never done. I'll tell you, one of the, the, best, the best book I think I've ever read in my life was um, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. I'll recommend that book okay. to anybody. Actually, you're the second person who's recommended his books. Yeah, oh. okay. His book was great. David Goggins. And um, yeah. I'll tell you that from what I found in my own experience, and I write about in my own books from my own experience, is that adversity and hardship is life's greatest teacher. If you choose to view the things that are hard in your life and things that you've been through that are tough, no one's ever going to be happy about dealing with hardship and pain and suffering, no matter what form it comes in, but there's a lot to learn in it. Um, but you've got to view it as that. I find that hard as a parent. I don't know about you, but, you know, we, we just don't ever want to see our kids have any kind of hardship, but it's oh. so hard to let it go and to let them experience things and grow from it. It's really hard. It is hard because sometimes you think, well, I've been through pain and hardship and I know how hard it is and I don't want you to go through the same thing, but you are setting them up to fail if you don't let them have... It's like you're, t- you're not going to let your kid ride a bike because you're going to fall off and graze their neck. You can't do that. You're taking something away from them by not allowing them life experiences. Yeah. But when they do graze their neck, you feel, oh, my God, I feel so terrible. Are you okay? But you think there is a life lesson in that for them. It might take them a while to figure it out, but they can look back at that and go, you know, when I was learning to ride a bike, I did stack it a few times, but eventually I stuck it out yeah. and now I can ride a bike. There's great value in that. And then my son plays football and he comes off injured every second game and I feel so bad like he busted knees and all that type of stuff and I think like, you know maybe you should just play can you go play tennis or something but that's he <laughs> loves football you know like, and see what he wants to do the hardship that I face myself well the first thing I'll say to everybody like sometimes I tell people my story about things and they'll say fuck that's a mate you folk, like how are you alive and like how have you dealt with that and you seem so put together and I'm like, like but I, I view the adversity of course I would not choose to have my best friend die and I would not choose to do all the jail that I've done, and I wouldn't choose to be shot, and I wouldn't choose to all the shit that I went through and put my family through. I wouldn't, I wouldn't choose it. But you know, like it's probably been the greatest lesson of my life, and I've been able to squeeze a lot out of it. Like the tough times and being lonely and feeling really grieving and about things and you know, overcoming addiction and like there's value in that that I still learn from today. You know, like there's sometimes the value in looking back at adversity, if the only thing you can gain from it is to go, hey, I got through it. I'm still fucking here. You can gain strength from that. If that's all that you can gain from it, you've still benefited from it. But you just got to choose to view it as such and it can guarantee you that uh, there'll be something else tough around the corner at some time and you'll be ready and in a better position to take it on having gone through you know, the previous shit you've been through. Obviously, we've just tapped the surface. If just you rattling off a few things there, and it's like, yep, yeah, you got to get the book. What's it called? Your book? Prison Poetry. Prison Poetry. What? What? What made you even think I might write a book? And how confident were you about it? How confident were you when you started telling people I'm writing a book? Did you feel silly? Did you feel 
like nuts. It's going to be really good. Tell us about that process. Cause when I started writing books, I felt a bit like a bit of a wanker telling people, mm. you know, it's a very vulnerable process. It is. Um, there's a imposter syndrome thing. Yes, definitely. Who looks like am I? Who's going to want to listen to what I've got to say? You know, like I'm just a fucking criminal from the West. You know, like nobody's, I'm just, nobody's going to be interested. So I had to deal with that. But the, that's doubt. That's self doubt. We all experience that. Anybody, no matter where they are, what success they've enjoyed, they all, everybody doubts themselves. Like you're not in a unique position if you're having doubts about any endeavor you set. You have to overcome your own self doubt. It will beat you before you start. So my, when I started, I didn't. Even, I wasn't intending to write a book. I just started writing poems. So that was for myself. That was one of the tools I used um, to get all the shit that was going on in my head out on paper. I just used poetry. So I would just write about. Sometimes it'd be day to day life in jail. You know, like it would be about the subject of adversity. There's a poem in there called Adversity. Um, so I just compiled a, you know, a catalogue of more poems, and I thought. I got to a point where I looked at it and I thought, well, there's actually a lot behind my poems. I can probably explain it in a lot of detail, you know, like my thought process, what led up to it, what happened. So it was probably a year or so after the writing, starting to write the poems that I decided that I thought I could probably put this into a book. And I just, yeah, I started writing. Once I started writing, I thought, well, my intention for it is to be of benefit. So, so that was, I, I think if I had just started, sat down and just wrote things about the poems themselves, I probably wouldn't have got anywhere with it. But the, the motivating factor that kept me doing it and wanting to do it was, which I said before, was, you know, like a bit of a redeeming process or a bit of a, a some redemption for myself to be able to give something positive back out of all the issues that I've caused. The motivating factor was, People will read this and I'll be able to help people. There's stuff in there about addiction. There's stuff in there about criminal offending, recidivism. There's stuff about overcoming adversity. There's a range of subjects in the book and it was all through my own experience. Like I said, one of the poems in there is about doubt. We just touched on that because I did experience doubt. And what I thought, if I want to, I've got a strong motivation now. I want to be of benefit to other people, but I have to deal with doubt because I keep on coming back to Fuck, look, no, I've never even written a book before. I don't know the first thing about writing a book. How do you write a book? How do you sell a book? And how do you, like, I don't want will publishers even want to publish my book? And then when I do, I want to put time and money into it. And who's going to want to read it? Like, I'm just a scumbag from jail. Like, so I put doubt in there. I, thought, I wrote a poem about doubt because it was something that I was experiencing while I was in prison and it was something that I was experiencing on uh, on the road to achieving a goal I had set myself. So I put that in there as well. So the book is, I think there's about, maybe 30 poems in there and just goes into a brief explanation. Most of them are just, you know, four or five page explanation of what, what, what was behind the poem and my experience. One of the poems is about the first time going into prison, what it feels like going to prison. You know, when I went to prison for the first time, I was 29 years old and I was pretty, you know, I was pretty fit. I trained my whole life, trained weights. So I was big. I was 105 or 110 kilos or something. I can fight. I can look after myself and I still felt like, fuck, this is, what am I walking into here? Like, I felt this big. Like, and that's something that everybody feels walking into prison for the first time. Yeah, I've heard about that. I've heard about blokes like like you, big blokes, say the first time they heard that door shut, they wanted to cry a bit. It was mm. like it's really intense emotionally. Just it's a lot of emotions going on at once. It is. So I thought, well, do you know what? 
that's something that people are genuinely interested in. I thought like when I tell people that story, they're like, wow, what does that feel like? You know, like you say to people, people that have got no idea about prison, it's like, oh, it's prison. Like the first thing they ask you is, did you get raped in prison? That's the first thing I'll say, look, I didn't get raped and I don't know anybody that does. And rapists are despised in jail. It doesn't matter if you the rapist, um, their victim is a man, woman or child, they are fucking despised and rightfully so, you know, so that it's not something that goes on. But I didn't know that the first time I was walking in either. Um, even though, you know, I had friends that go to prison, a lot of the people that I, pretty much most of the people that grew up around all have been in prison at some point, but I still had those feelings. I was like, God, you know, what's going to happen? Am I going to have to fight? Like, you, we've all seen movies about jail. Like, do I have to fight the biggest guy in the yard? Do I have to get respect? Like, what do I do? Like, there's no nobody that's sitting you down and telling you step by step, this is the process, this is what's going to happen, everything's going to be okay, whatever. There's none of that. You just walk in and you just... You just take things as they come, and it is a daunting experience. So, like, you get to the unit, the pod, um, and then everybody's sizing you up. Like, because to them, too, like, anybody new coming in could be a threat as well. There's some level, like, they're like, so who is this guy? Who's walking in here? So you look around, uh, the pod that I went into had 80 people in it, so you got, oh, maybe more. So there's 80 people just eyeing you off, looking you up and down, and you're standing there by yourself thinking, what am I walking into? And everybody's desperate <laughs> thinking, who the fuck are you? So um, anyway, so I thought, you know what, that's interesting. I should explain So I wrote my poem, but that's why I'm going to explain that a little bit more. I feel like that's something that people will be genuinely interested in because when I, when I talk to people, they do show genuine interest. Yeah, for sure, we are. We're fascinated by it. And, and not by a movies or a TV show, by by someone who's been there, absolutely, and who's as articulate as you are. And when you add on to that in a creative way, I, I don't think I've ever met. I mean, Ray Mooney's written plays and things, but it's it's interesting to meet someone who's who's found a creative outlet. Like I don't think I've ever met anyone who's written poetry about being in jail. I'm sure people do, but maybe don't feel then the confidence to share it publicly afterwards i did oh, there was an element of that going back to doubt like i dealt with doubt on like almost a daily basis about it i'm like fuck i'm writing so people are going to think oh i thought you were some big fucking tough guy and you write the fucking poems yeah. you, you know your pussy or whatever <laughs> but i thought you know what i give a fuck what people think i've never given a fuck. why would i care now that's how tough you are mate you're tough enough to release a book of poetry <laughs> <laughs> but you know what the one thing or two that i really it would be great to shake the it's just people to say, I'm because I'm not that guy anymore. Like I don't want to be that guy. I would hate for people to think of I'd rather people show me respect out of what you know, for the, the turnaround and the intention of what I'm trying to do now, than to show me fucking respect out of some kind of fear or I heard you were pretty fucking tough. I think I would fucking hate for that. So like I would I, I if there was obviously an option between the two, I would rather say, you know what, fucking you see me as the pussy that wants poetry, then I'll take that over than the fucking the big tough image because I don't want it at all. That's fascinating. That's a really primal shift for you as a man to say, I would genuinely rather, and, and you're laughing, I can see it's genuine because you're laughing it off. You're like, oh, no, I'd rather them say to me, oh, you big pussy writing your book of poetry. And you, the way you're laughing about it, I can see it's really genuine that you don't want to be feared. You don't want people to say, Oh fuck! I'm not going to call him a pussy for writing a poetry book. Are you joking? Mm. He fucking stabs people. You know you don't. You genuinely would not want people to say that. That's an ego shift that you can't just decide to make. I mean, that is such a primal shift in. Uh, it feels to me, especially for a man to make that. That feels like it's real soul stuff. You know, it's very deep. Well, I think the ego is probably one of our biggest issues as a human beings. If we can put our ego aside. With- 
like it's probably one of the things as long as well as uh, alongside with doubt that will just ruin you and stand in your get in your own way get in your own head if you can put your ego aside and you can learn to overcome doubt i think you smash your goals and my goals are to be a benefit to help people not just to go into the jails and talk to kids but anybody like i have people messaging me um you know like through social media you know they say you know i read your book it was great i've started exercising more you know like i found it really inspiring or you know my mum has a issue with drugs and you know like i've, I've read your book and you know, i feel like i'm in a better position to help her i'm going to try and get her to read it that's what i want to hear um and i always say like if your motivation is good for something and you've got a good strong motivation i can't achieve my goals because i've got good strong motivation and i'll say that to anyone it's not i'm not looking to make money i'm not allowed to make money from my books from a legal perspective because it's seen as proceeds of crime so there's no monetary value for, for this for me. Like I put my own money into it. I self-publish, so I, I put my own money into it. So where does the money go in that case? If this already been decided that this particular book, because it's it's coming under the Proceeds of Crime Act, you can't make money out of it. Where does the money go if it starts to turn a profit? No, I sold the I sold the rights to my son for one dollar. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. that's so awesome. <laughs> okay, that's great. Look, one of the parts of me feeling like not fulfilling the needs of the father to my son, obviously the most important thing is just time and being around. But also too, obviously I wasn't able to provide for him in any way because I'm not making any money in prison. We get paid $25 a week for him in the jail. So I want to provide something for him. And if I put some money into a bank account for him and you know, like if it helps him buy for his car or something, I just feel like it's there's an aspect of that. It's like, I just want to give him something. So I have to ask you, uh, when how long you've been out of jail? Uh, well, I got out in October of 22, uh, 2022, so it'd be around the 15 months now. Since I first went to jail, it's the longest I've been out, which to some people goes fuck, 15 months. That's, like I said, the last time it was eight weeks, so <laughs> I'm doing considerably better. So, congratulations, yeah. You've definitely broken your own personal cycle, oh. and um, obviously you're, you're a very different attitude and very different lifestyle. Even your attitude is a choice. Like one of the things I talk about in my book is you can make a choice for anything, and the choices that you make will lead you, like the consequences of that, whether they're good or bad, that is on you. So like I, I make a choice, I make a conscious choice. I made it when I first went to jail this time. How am I going to solve my issues? I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out, and I did. This is the result of that choice that I made five years ago. But I'm still making choices every day and have made choices every day since to stay on that path, and it's a work in progress. I could make a choice tomorrow that completely unravels all the good I've done and fuck things up and go back to jail. It can happen that easy. I have to make the choice, you know, when I get people on the road fucking you know, cut you off and fuck you and all this other stuff, and they're like, the old me that wants to pull, pull them over and give them an apple or whatever, and you know, but then what is there to gain in that? I'm the, then I've learned nothing, and I'm back at square one, so you just laugh and let it go. So do you have any matters hanging over your head or you, you're clean and free at this moment? No, 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 everything's done. So I'm still on parole. Um, so when I got out October 2022, I had three-year parole, so I'm obviously still on parole. Um, but with parole, if you do all the right things, I was employed, obviously not committing offences, I was to you know, take no drugs, take no alcohol, all that sort of stuff. I stuck to them all, so they wind back. The, um, oh, the conditions? Yeah, the, the conditions are well. Oh, great. Back. So um, I'm at a stage now where I think every in six month increments, I just have to go in and say, this is what I'm doing. I'm still employed. I'm, this is you know my address. Like they, they want to know like you know what issues have you had? How have you addressed them? You know like is there any concerns that you have? Is there anything that we can do from you? But it takes a while to get to that point. Like you have to show up and provide, you know, like negative drug tests. You have to show them proof I'm working, I'm employed, I'm doing all the right things. 
one of the things that I think with a massive problem with the recidivism issue is that there's also no parole is supposed to be a pathway out into the community and support you, but there's no if while you're in prison, you should be able to upskill. You should be able to, um, you know, better educated. You should be able to, you know, say, for instance, if you want to get out and you, I would work in the crane industry now. So um, I went and paid for all my tickets so I could work in the crane industry. If when you, you know, if you do your drug and alcohol offending courses, you do your violence and whatever the, the causal issues after offending, you address them in prison, then the next step should be, Let's work on a pathway for you out so you don't come back. Let's upskill you. What job would you like to do? These are the things, options that we have available to you. Okay, today, for instance, if I want to get into the train industry, uh, they could say, well, we have a few courses that we can do and we can also put you in contact with some employers when you get out. Because one of the issues is that guys get out, they have no job. People don't want to go, what have you been doing for the last eight years? Oh, I've been in jail. What are you in jail for? Oh, I stabbed somebody. Like, not too many people are too keen on what qualifications do you have. Um, oh, well, 10 years ago, I worked on a building site. Like, how employable are you? And on top of all that, they're readjusting back into society. They're trying to figure out how a new mobile phone works. They're all the practical stuff. And I agree with you that it seems like they should have a more supportive parole system. Because I think we talk a lot about the problems with parole and people, you know, committing offences on parole and all of those negatives. But we don't talk about the purpose of parole and as you said, it should be a pathway back into society and into not reoffending. It should be that supportive time where it's like, okay, we're going to give you some tools, give you some support, help you into housing, into employment, try and ease you back into society. But it's not, is it? People are really left to their own devices. They are. Like the thing with the, you mentioned with not reoffending, that needs to start on day one of your prison sentence. When I go back to what I said earlier about saying you're not eligible, you're not sentenced yet, your risk of reoffending is too low, I see that issue as, when I say the system, I'm talking about you know the justice system, the corrective system as a whole. The system as a whole needs to go, we've got this person for however long. Some people get bailed two days later. Some people get bailed after six months. Some people, by the time they're sentenced, have served their full term. So you can't do these courses until you've been sentenced, but sometimes you get sentenced and you serve your term. So I think what the system needs to look at is how can we start the process of effectively dealing the issues that are causing to these guys or girls offending from day one right fucking now. So when you go in, they should say, right, these are your charges. Here's some options that are available for you in the form of courses, speaking to a psychologist. I'll tell you one thing that is real big issue within the prison system is mental health issues. There are people in there that have got all sorts of mental health issues from all sorts of causes. A lot of it is related to drugs, but there's people in there that have been the victims of all sorts of violence, sexual violence, victims of physical violence, people who've grown up homeless, people who've got some, like, you're looking, what we're talking about is the issues that are causal to offending. And I think if you can nail down on that, find out what the, the, the issues that are causal to somebody's offending, and from the first moment they have contact with the system, make a genuine attempt to address it. If you give them the choice and they say no, well, then that's on them, so be it. But here is what is available to you. You're in for violence. There's a course here. A new one starts on Monday. Why don't you sit in that course and we'll put you down to speak to the psychologist. We'll have you speak to one for initial consultation in two weeks, for instance. So that person's in, the, in jail for six months before they get bail or before they're sentenced. That's six months of treatment. And I think that's the way that it needs to be viewed because... The question that everybody asks now is when they see somebody on the news that's out on bail or 
Fathom Parole commit a new offence and going in. They're saying, why the fuck were they let out? Maybe the question we can start asking is, well, why was this? Why was the system not effectively dealing with their issues while they were in? Which is, I know that some people will listen to this and say, like, to advocate for something for a criminal is it's very easy to dismiss. Is go fuck them? They made their choices. You know, like you do the crime, you do the time. Daddy, I'm not saying that you shouldn't. Like there is obviously value in punishment for your crime. That's that is a part of it. The system should be both punitive and rehabilitative. The system is punitive, but it's wholly punitive. There is no rehabilitation in the system. I think that anyone, though, who spends any time at all researching crime, reading about it, watching any, you know, any has a passing interest in crime, learns that the system creates violent offenders through various ways through kicking kids out in primary school because they're naughty. I know you don't believe that, but I do. Um, through various, you know, the juvenile justice system, through the foster system and through the prison system, through the way that we deal. We, d- we deal badly with victims and sometimes victims become offenders and there are lots and lots and lots of ways that we create violent offenders. Look, this issue and what we're talking about is recidivism as a whole and crime as a whole, but recidivism specifically, that is not an easy, that's complex. So to say that this is a solution that will solve the problem is just not, it's not reasonable to say that this is the one thing. It's multifaceted. It's probably going to, what I say, it's going to take a genuine attempt and it's going to take money, which is the next unpopular thing, especially when it's for dirty criminals. <laughs> so people would be yes. like, we've got, we've got hospitals that are, you know, we can die in need of better funding. Our you know, nurses are underpaid. Their money could be redirected. These people made their choice. But as a flow, like what I always say, every crime has a victim. And by not effectively addressing or made genuinely attempting to address those issues, you're almost guaranteeing that, that person is going to commit another crime which is their choice. I'm not saying there's no level of responsibility. They have to take ownership, and that is part of solving the problem is getting them to take ownership. But you are ensuring there'll be another victim. That's another house that's going to get broken into. That's somebody that's you know, going to be the victim of a violent offence. And what if that next victim is someone that is close to you? That's it. Absolutely. Do you want your daughter or your mother or your friend ringing you up and saying, fuck, my house just got robbed? I can tell you when you go into jail, especially for the first time, but each time you go in, you're in a vulnerable position, which I think that vulnerability... At some level, like we we're talking about ego before, you can almost, to a certain extent, take your ego out of that situation. And when you've got someone that's in that vulnerable state with their ego set aside and you offer them help, there's a very good chance they're going to take it. So somebody like myself who was in that state and that time was reaching out for help and was being denied at every step, that you hear guys in jail say the system is against us. We are set up to fail. You hear that all the time. That's how it felt. It's very easy then going from a vulnerable state where you're open for help and you're ready to turn things around and you're having the door slammed in your face to turn around and push back harder and go, fuck you, I'll get out and I'll, I'll sell drugs again. I'll... We all know somebody who's been the victim of some crime. It could, most of us, you know, they, they're probably victims of their lesser end of things. They've had their car stolen or their house has been broken into. Maybe they were beaten up one time. But it, it is all around us. But I don't want to blame the system, the individual. This is, this is how one of the ways that I've been able to get to where I am and put me in a position to, you know, overcome the, the issues that were causing me to offend all the time. Like I had to take ownership. I had to take responsibility. But along with that, the corrective other system, it's called corrective services. They are neglecting their responsibility. Good point. 
thank you to our guest today, Scott Kieran. His book is called Prison Poetry, and there's a link in the show notes to this episode to help you buy your copy. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13 yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.